Hello and welcome to the MDDDS podcast. We're at episode 23 and we're continuing our apologetics series. And tonight, Kyle Fagel, that's me, I'll be teaching on the topic of did God design the universe? And so I think when you uh, have heard arguments of intelligent design, sometimes that means one thing or another thing. Uh, Tonight, what we'll actually be talking about is when we look at the universe, when we look at the complexity of the universe and the things in it, does that point towards chance or necessity or design? Is there something that points towards the need for a designer, let's say? Uh, A lot of really deep theological and scientific arguments in tonight's lesson. If you are a person that loves science, that loves astronomy, that loves outer space, I think you'll really enjoy this. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's jump in right now. Okay, so I'm going to start with a little bit of an exercise, and so I need you to help me out here. This is supposed to be the photo, so you can see this guy kind of taking in the night sky. And so if you want to close your eyes, you can do that, but you don't have to. You can just kind of sit there and listen. And I want you, though, to to kind of imagine, put yourself in this place, okay? All right, so imagine you're on a camping trip. It's midnight, and you can't sleep, so you walk away from your campsite by yourself and happen upon a large open field. You find a fence, and you take a seat. The temperature is perfect, and it is so quiet. There are no kids around, no cars. There's just the still sound of wind blowing by your ear and the occasional chirp of a cricket. In your hand, you've got a Yeti cup filled with sweet tea. Not too sweet. Maybe some coffee. Um, And you're completely relaxed and present in this moment. All right, can you see yourself there? Okay. You gaze up at the night sky, and it's bright and countless stars above you, and you just take it all in. Okay. So as I read that, I really want to be there. And you can open your eyes. All right. So those sort of moments, oh, I love those moments. It's just like peaceful. It's quiet, still. Um, and you look up in the stars, and here's some just kind of open discussion questions. Uh, what goes through your mind as you search the sky? Where's the Big Dipper? Where's the Big Dipper? Always a good question. Yeah. It is funny. You start to think... I knew some constellations. Is that Ursa Minor or Major? I'm always uh, really floored with how many stars there are. Like there's so many more stars around the middle of nowhere. It's like, where have these been? But also I'm, I'm like totally blown away that anyone could have ever come up with constellations, like as a concept. I mean, there's so many stars. I don't know how you would ever know. So I'm with you, I'm with you. What about this? What, what questions do you ask? What do you want to know? Do you feel small? I mean, I, I'm, I'm about to sort of teach this, but I mean, you sort of think of like uh, how enormous things are. You sort of get an idea of, like you said, how small you are, but also just like how complex things are. I always kind of have that thought. And then I always have this like kind of weird thought of like God being up there, you know, like, a, like you're going to like catch him or something. I also think of the Lion King when they're like laying down and they're talking about that and I think Pumbaa like knows what it is or something. <laughs> He's like, I think it's like giant balls of gas floating off in space or something. Um, anyway, 
No, it's your relatives, right? Um, anyway, the point is, is to kind of put yourself in that mindset. And, and the reason is, is we're, we're, we're going to talk here in a, sec a second about ancient thinkers. And I think that the way that we think of the universe and the way that we think of science is obviously informed by our perspective. But I also think that we don't think about a lot of the wonder of the universe and of space and also of nature because we don't take the time to look at it. I just think we're so distracted by the things that we don't, I mean, you would think that if you slept outside your whole life, you would obviously look up at the sky a lot more often and, and have these thoughts of like, how did I get here? You know, I think we're so busy, we don't have time for those thoughts. All right, so this is, we're going to do, uh, I, I had this as a quick review, but now it's a quick, quick preview because we have not done this yet. But David is going to teach on this, I think, next week on did the universe begin to exist. So this question of did God design the universe, which is what we're doing tonight, it really follows this question. So I hate that, um, and I don't want to ruin his lesson, but we, we do think the universe began to exist, um, and we think that, that God is at the source of that. But he'll do a great job with that next time. I think this is the question first, is why are we talking about these things? Why are we asking these questions? This was originally taught in a class where most of the people aren't science people, so I think in this group it kind of makes sense because we do want to talk about faith and science as people who are doctors and dentists and PAs and everything else and engineers. Um, but the reason we're talking about it is a couple things. I think that culturally we're at a point where the majority opinion now is that God is a little silly. In the United States, I think if you poll people, most people would say they believe in God, but I think if you really press them on it, I, just, I think most people would kind of think, oh, this is a little bit silly. Or I just maybe just kind of believe it because I'm like scared or I just don't know. Or You certainly look at Europe and they're already there. They're already post-Christian. Um, and I think people would say it's unreasonable. So it's not reasonable. It's not logical. And I don't believe it on reason. I believe it on faith is what people would say. And so this apologetic series is about yeah, it's, it's great to believe it in faith, but it's also okay to have reason for why you believe it, that it's, it's reasonable to have faith in these ideas, and I think that's important. Um, I think also this mindset or this cultural way of thinking about things can rub off on us, especially in a medical field, a dental field. It's just sort of the assumed way of things that, well, there's no need for God. And so I think it's really easy to kind of bury those questions because you're afraid of what the answers might say. But I think the answers to a lot of these questions are actually really pro-God and pro-Christianity. Um, I would also say this is sort of a, a barb at atheists, is that I think atheists and certainly like pure science people, naturalists, I think they think they have all the answers and I think that science, they feel, can answer all these questions about how the universe came to exist and all these sort of things, but I think we'll look at tonight that it's not that easy, okay? And so when David talks about how the universe began to exist, that is not an easy question to answer and science does not have a satisfactory answer for that. Um, and the truth is, what I would say is, is that those answers do not exist. And the irony is, is that atheists have faith in science. And so they would criticize Christians for having faith in God, but they truly have faith in the sense that it is unseen that there's a scientific solution for all this. An atheist has to have some faith, as it were. Okay? All right, so let's look at, we've, we've worn this uh, Bible verse to death. We've worn it out, rather. But this is, if you're wondering, well, why are we talking about apologetics? This is sort of the, the source verse from 1 Peter. It's always be prepared to make a defense. And that word in, in Greek is apologia, which then they, from that, derive apologetics. To anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. All right, so this is William Lane Craig. Uh, he has two PhDs and really well-respected guy in Christian circles, but also he debates a lot of atheists and uh, agnostics. And so... 
mean, I'm sure that there are atheists that can't stand the guy or whatever, but uh, respected guy, really great debater, and he's written the books that we've based this on. And so he has this book on the left, the more academic version, and this is sort of like the kind of Reader's Digest version that's really great. And if you're at all interested in this, I'd definitely get on guard. If you want it, I will, I will buy you a copy of it. Okay, I love it. So this one's a little bit too deep, but that one's good. All right, so this is his argument that kind of made him famous, and it's actually, the interesting thing about it is it's sort of an adaptation of an argument that a Muslim theologian came up with like a thousand years ago. Uh, whose name is Al-Ghazali, and so David will talk about that. But it's this, and so it's a logically valid argument. So there's three different premises, and if you can prove the first two to be true, then the third follows in its truth. So a real kind of classical philosophical way of deciding what could be true. So the first uh, premise is that whatever begins to exist has a cause. David will talk about this, and we'll try and see if that's true or untrue. Uh, then there's this question of did the universe begin to exist? If we can prove that, we can say that the universe has a cause for its existence, okay? So this may not mean a whole lot because, again, we have not done it yet, but I think when we do, I think you'll enjoy that. What we then conclude from that is, is that God is the personal creator of the universe, the uncaused first cause. So there's a cause for the universe, but obviously the cause for the universe, either it had to exist for all eternity or there had to be something else bigger than it that would have caused it to exist. And so God's, God is an uncaused first cause, the one that put the universe into motion, and he's eternal and uncaused, okay? So we'll talk about that. Here's kind of a conclusion quote of that, and this is, again, what we'll talk about next week. But the Kalam cosmological argument, the argument that we looked at, gives us powerful grounds for believing the existence of a beginningless, uncaused, timeless, spaceless, changeless, immaterial, enormously powerful personal creator of the universe. All right, so that's a quote from him. So now you're like really excited. That was like a preview for uh, a good movie. Like Infinity War or something, right? I'm so excited about that. Okay, so let's jump into this. And I th like I said, I think you'll enjoy it. It does get a little bit deep. And what I would say about this is this is the sort of thing that I think it's just one of those things that's good to hear once and be made aware of so that you don't have to feel embarrassed if someone starts saying that Christianity is stupid. It's kind of what it comes down to. And I think it's something you can kind of come back to with someone who is really scientifically based in the way they think about things and be able to point out to them that, you know, it's, this is not going to prove God, but it at least proves that it's not as simple as, well, science explains it. And it just happened, you know, several billion years ago, and it's just the way it is. It's just not that simple. Okay. Uh, so let's first look at some ancient thinkers. And uh, the first one, this is your first blank, uh, is Plato. And not spelled like the kid's toy. Okay. <laughs> Plato. And uh, if you learn anything about Plato, I mean, both he and Aristotle, Socrates, all those guys were just super brilliantly smart. Um, they all believed that the universe was past eternal. That was kind of the way of thinking. And really up until about the 1920s and 30s, that was the way that we thought. Now we think that the universe began at a certain point in the past. There's a lot of other theories about that, but that's, that's generally what the scientific community believes now. But back then they didn't think that. Um, but he was very struck with the order of the cosmos, or of the universe, or the spa you know, space that's around us. And his goal in general was he wanted to find truth by means of rational inquiry. And so a lot of the way that we think, a lot of the way that we do medical school, really has its base in the, in the way that Plato and Aristotle thought about things. And I don't have the, the, I deleted it from here, but he had like a school that was around for, it's like over a thousand years. I think the oldest U.S. school is Harvard, and it's been around for like, 
300 or something. I mean, it's like crazy. He had this, this academy that was around forever. Um, and his academy focused uh, a lot of time on astronomy. So um, he said that astronomy was a science that would awaken man to his divine destiny. And so I don't think we think of astronomy in that way any longer. And for him, though, it was a big deal. Um, he said also that he believed that two things led men to believe in God, uh, which is interesting because I don't know that he necessarily believed in God, but um, it was the existence of the soul. And then, so the soul thing I think makes sense. I think there is something different about us as humans. But the second thing is, is basically astronomy. He says the order of the motion of the stars and of all the things under the dominion of the mind which ordered the universe. And so he used these as arguments against atheism. And basically, he's looking at outer space. He's saying, like, the way that this is all ordered, there's got to be something that put this into motion. Now, he called it a mind, right? But someone else, that you say that's a god or maybe it's gods. But just there's something that's outside of the natural that would have had to have ordered all this. All right, and so he has this quote. This is from, I mean, 400 years before Jesus. Uh, there must be a best soul, in quotation marks, who is the maker and father of all, the king who ordered the primordial chaos into the rational cosmos that we observe today. Okay, so I think that's pretty cool. Still not a, you know, didn't believe in God per se, but just I think the interesting thing is that on his own, through rational inquiry, he came to this conclusion, which I think is cool. All right, then we got Aristotle who had no eyes. He just had little marbles. Um, so um, he was a student of Plato. And it's funny, your brother, my, this, one of the smartest people I know is Anna's, uh, I guess, middle brother, you'd call it Michael. And he's studying like Russian literature at, at what, Penn? And uh, super smart. I get around him. I, I hate being around people who are smarter than me. It, you know, this makes me uncomfortable. Just kidding. <laughs> no, he's like another level smarter. And he's like reading like Aristotle books. And it's like, gosh, dude. He's like, oh, yeah, and on philosophy. It's like, it's crazy. So anyway, I've never read Aristotle, okay? So I'm not that level of smart. Um, but uh, he actually imagined this sort of uh, allegory, which I think is awesome. You may have heard about it, but he imagines the impact. So he's got these people that... It's a race of men who've lived underground. They've never been outside. There's also like a cave allegory that's kind of related. Um, and he imagines the impact that the side of the world would have on these people, which I think is kind of a cool way to think of, uh, really like as distracted as we are, like if you took someone that had been like in a dungeon their whole life and you took them outside, like what would they conclude? You know, this probably happened by accident. You know, like I don't... I don't know if that's what they would think, but this is what he said. He said, They would see the earth, the seas, the sky, the clouds and the wind, the sun, moon, and stars, their courses fixed and changeless throughout eternity. When they should behold all these things, most certainly they would have judged both that there exist gods and that all the marvelous works are the handiwork of the gods. Okay. So again, gods, you know, he's not talking about God, but still, that was his conclusion. And then, of course, we've got Paul, too. All right. So he was no slouch. And in Romans, he said this, Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Okay? Um, and the point of all this is, is that from earliest times, so back to the time of Plato and Aristotle and even Paul, uh, men who are wholly ignorant of the Bible, that were wholly ignorant of you know, all the theology that we've built up over these past thousand years, um, have concluded on the basis of design of the universe that God must exist. Okay, I think that's interesting. What's also interesting is that we've tried to pull ourselves away from that, and we've tried to basically, we've been talking about the Tower of Babel as we've studied Genesis. I, I think there's like a parallel there where it's you get to this point where, well, 
we're smart enough that we don't need God. And what we'll actually do is instead of needing God, like we'll actually build a tower up into heaven where we'll live with the gods, basically. And we'll do this ourselves, and it'll be because we, we can work together. I think we've tried to do that with science, with modern sciences. We've tried to come up with answers that mean that we don't need God. I think we talked about this last week where we've sort of orphaned ourselves from God. Okay, But then on the other end of that, now we find out, like, maybe there is a God. And the interesting thing is, is that many astronomers, as a result of recent discoveries, are coming to similar conclusions as, the, as those of guys from 2,000 years ago. And it's sort of, you've got to feel like a little bit silly. It's like, oh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe this is ordered. This is, is designed. Okay. And I don't mean to sound naive, and I don't mean to sound like straw man about the other sides of these arguments, but um, there's definitely truth in that. So we're going to look at fine-tuning. Okay. Your, so you had the blanks Plato, Aristotle, Paul. I guess that was pretty obvious. And then this blank is the rebirth of design. So the idea is, is that in, in antiquity, design was like a, it was like a good argument for how things had gotten there. Okay, that was a way that they could think about it. And so we used to think, and this is not in the sense of design, but we used to think that the early universe, given enough time and luck, would produce life forms like ourselves. And this is true. Like if if the universe were eternal and there was infinite time, it is plausible to say that yeah, this could have like happened. Or maybe there's like multiple universes, and there's bubble universes, and there's oscillating universes. There's all these like theories, and at the end of all that, there, there are theories that try and disprove the need for a god or an uncaused first cause, effectively. Um, and certainly, like a, a monkey could produce Shakespeare if given enough time, right? And a, and a typewriter. Um, we now realize, though, that for our universe to permit the existence of intelligent life anywhere at all in the cosmos, there needs to be a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions present in the Big Bang itself. Okay, so you may be sitting here, may, you may not believe in the Big Bang, and that is perfectly fine. All the Big Bang means, it was actually a derogatory term originally, it's just that at some point in the past, things came into existence. And what the best of our science would, would say is, is that it happened and this in, infinitesimally small amount of original goop, it blew out from there and that it originally, or then it ultimately got us to where we are today. It was actually coined by a guy named Fred Hoyle, and he was critical of the Big Bang, but he said that a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. Okay, And so what we're going to look at is this idea of fine-tuning, what that is, does that point to design, basically. All right. So fine-tuning, all that means is that there is a delicate balance of initial conditions of the universe that is necessary for life. That does not mean that things were designed at all. So any physicist or astronomer or someone that deals in these quantum mechanic, mechanicists, I guess you'd say, those sort of people, they would agree, yeah, the universe is fine-tuned for existence. Basically, that if you change one thing, something would change, okay? And we'll look at how fine-tuned it is. So it doesn't say anything about how the fine-tuning is best explained. It certainly doesn't say that there's a God, but we all would agree scientifically that the universe is fine-tuned. And it means, to kind of give it a little bit more definition, that your blank there is fine-tuning. It just means that the range of life-permitting values for the constants and quantities is extremely narrow. Okay, So we'll look at these constants and quantities. There's two types of fine-tuning. All right, so these two types of fine-tuning. The first one is constants of nature. That's your blank. 
All right, so the example that, that I use is Newton's law of universal gravitation. Does anyone know what that equation is? I don't have it in here. It's, it's F equals G times mass one times mass two over the radius squared. It's basically like if you have two masses, like let's imagine Earth and a person, and they each have a radius around their body, that they attract each other with a certain force, and that there is a gravitational constant that acts on that. Okay, whatever that is. What, 9.8, is it that one? No, it's actually not, it's like this weird number. It's yeah. Yeah, it's like a like 6.23 times whatever to the whatever. That's yeah. No, I'm just making up stuff now. Hey, you didn't know what it was. You said G equals, so. Well, it, sometimes they call it capital G for the force of gravity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, fair enough. Um, <laughs> he didn't know it, guys. He did not know it. Um, but the point is, is that this constant of nature is that, that little, that, that, that capital G, okay? And so you find it, uh, in this case, with G, and it's an unchanging quantity. And the point is, is like, it's a constant, but like, why is it that constant? Like, couldn't it be another constant? Couldn't that number be like a little bit different? Why is it that? Well, it's sort of that because it's that, you know? It's like the way that they could fix the equation and what it made it work, basically. Um, and so there's other examples of this. Uh, force of gravity, electromagnetic force, subatomic weak force. These are unchanging figures. These are constants as we understand them in our universe. Um, these are also not determined by the laws of nature, okay? Um, and so I, I use this as an example. Is everyone, anyone, and I think I'm too old for this to land with anyone, but anyone ever play the old computer game that was called Gorillas? It's like an old Q-Basic game. See, I'm, I'm aging myself, okay? There was like these two gorillas and you were like, it was sort of like a King Kong motif. And so there was like all these like skyscrapers, these two gorillas and you would throw um, bananas at each other and you would set the velocity and the angle before you started, you could change the, the gravity, okay? So you could change it from like normal, like 9.8 to like zero, and it would throw it off completely. So you're trying to kill the other the gorilla with, with a banana, and you would change it and try and, but that's kind of what this is like. Like, the universe could have the same laws of nature, like this equation could still be true, but that capital G, that constant, could be totally different. There's nothing to say that it, it has to be the way that it is. It just is the way it is. And of course, depending on the values of those constants, things could be totally different. We could have a completely different universe. And the point is, is that universe might very well be life uh, prohibiting, like it wouldn't allow for life. Like you've probably heard, like if the earth was even, I don't know, you know, 100 miles this way, like it'd be 17 degrees colder. You know, some crazy things like what, you know? Um, and so that's kind of what we're saying by that. Now the next one is, in terms of fine tuning, is arbitrary physical quantities. And so, Unlike the constants, which is just, it's a thing that exists and it's not dependent on the laws of nature, but the laws of nature act on it. An arbitrary physical quantity is initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. So just like constants, these are not determined by the laws of nature. These are just what they are. This is what it started with. So an example is the amount of thermodynamic disorder, which we call entropy in the early universe. And so it's sort of a given that there was a certain amount of entropy in the initial conditions of the Big Bang, and that the laws of nature, they, they took place and they did their thing, but it, it had to have this certain amount of, uh, you know, quantity of entropy for it to work out and to, for it to develop from there. Um, and of course, if those quantities were different, uh, an entirely different universe would have presented, okay? And so the point is, is that these constants and these quantities, these two things that are very fine-tuned, and we'll get into how fine-tuned they are, 
they have to fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of values for the universe to be life permitting. And so this is what the fine tuning of our universe is, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, all right. All right, so let's give some examples of fine tuning just to help kind of bring this home. All right, these are just two numbers for perspective. So these numbers don't mean anything to the fine tuning of the universe, but it's just to help you thinking, start thinking about big numbers, okay? <clears throat> so the biggest number I know is a Google. Do you know what a Google is? It's a, it's a search engine, right? But it's, it's, it's one followed by 100 zeros. That's what a Google is. So when I, when I want to impress Charlie, I say, it's a Google. And it's like, he's like, oh. You know, um, but obviously, like a million's like what one with six, five zeros, six zero. Mm, you should probably know that six zeros, and a trillion, a billion, all the way down to Google. And there's, I'm sure, much bigger things than a Google. But anyway, these are numbers that make uh, that eventually seem very small. And so the number of seconds in the entire history of the universe, just for perspective again, is ten to the seventeenth power. Okay, so that is one followed by seventeen zeros, and that's what the number looks like. Okay, the next one is the number of subatomic particles in the entire known universe, which, as I say this, how do they know that? I don't know, but people agree to this, I guess, and it is uh, one followed by 80 zeros, so 10 to the 80th power, okay? Now let's get into fine-tuning. So what we're going to look at uh, is what's called the subatomic weak force, and this is, uh, you know, you've probably learned about this in school. This is a, a thing that exists, and I think it keeps atoms together within cells and things like that, um, but it is a measurable force. Um, and it's so finely tuned, and the point is, is that if you altered it by even one little bit of value, one little part, at a level of 10 to the 100th power, uh, it would have prevented a life-permitting universe, okay? Now, as I say all this stuff, I want you to understand, this is not stuff that is like established by some, you know, Christian creationism-like group. To, to prove God. This is like scientific stuff. These are things that people that don't believe in God would say, yeah, this is true. This is the way it is. They would think about it differently. Their conclusion would be different or they wouldn't have a conclusion, but this, these, are, these are the facts, okay? All right, we look at the cosmological constant, and this is what drives the acceleration of the universe's expansion. So a large part of where we came up with the Big Bang was reversing the expansion of our universe to a point in history. And so they saw that there was a red shift and they kind of figured out, and I don't know how they did it, but I guess as, as stars were moving away and in a certain way, they kind of, well, this is the constant and we'll reverse it. And hey, our universe is 13.7 million years old. That's kind of how they came up with that in a really dumbed down version. Um, but this uh, constant uh, is finely tuned to the extent of 10 to the 120th power. So if you change one little part of that, it would have rendered the universe life prohibiting. Okay, now the real doozy though, is this one. This is the low entropy state in which our universe began. And so this would be certainly, it's an arbitrary physical quantity. This is the entropy that existed such that the Big Bang went the way it went. And this is a number from Roger Penrose of Oxford University, who I believe is an atheist. But the odds that a low entropy state existed by chance alone is on the order of 1 in 10 to the 10th power multiplied by the 123rd. So I don't even know how to like say the number. But this is what it is, okay? So I had Google give me this number. And so if you're listening to this and you can't see it, there's like a whole screen full of zeros. This is the matrix, yeah. If you can read this, Morpheus is coming for you, okay? Take the blue pill. 
Um, so obviously the point is, and the, this exercise is really what it is, is it's just to come to an appreciation that the fine-tuning that exists in our universe is beyond com comprehension. Okay, this, this is not a number that anyone can grasp. It, it's, it's ridiculous. I, you, you mean you have to come up with a different way of even writing it for it to make sense. Um, and I hope you're able to write all those numbers down. Sorry I made those blanks, but I thought it was good to kind of write it out. Um, and so here's kind of the quote to bring this home, is that if the value of even one of these constants or quantities were to be altered by a hair's breadth, the delicate balance would, uh, required for the existence of life would be upset and the universe would be life prohibiting instead. Okay. All right. Does that make sense? Does that mean anything? Does that kind of like speak to you in any way? Maybe, maybe not. If it doesn't, you're probably not going to say you're like you're being nice. Or... Oh, yeah, it's great. Uh, isn't that tough? It's a toughie, right? Um, all right. So if we accept, and and again, th these are like this is the fact area. This is not like the area where there's any argument. The universe is finely tuned. Okay, we've accepted that, and we understand that. Now we're going to get into well, what's what's the best explanation for the fine tuning of the universe? And this is why we're here tonight. Um, and so we're going to look at that. So there's three basic options. If there is a fourth option, uh, I'm not aware of it, or there's not been one that's been lifted up as an option. And so if you're trying to answer why this is the case, here are the three main options. Okay, so there's physical necessity, chance, or design. All right, and so we're going to do one of these logically valid arguments again, where you've got the, the two premises and then you've got the conclusion. All right, so if we can... Uh, you know, prove that number two is true and number one is true, that number three follows logically, okay? All right, so we're first going to look at the first premise, okay? So the first premise is that the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. And then we're going to show that it's not due to physical necessity or chance, therefore it's due to design. But let's look at this first premise, okay? Now, the first premise is pretty easy, so this is easy, guys. Um, it is pretty much unobjection uh, unobjectionable since it merely lists the alternatives. There exists no popular fourth alternative. So we've made it through the first premise, okay? So these are our options, okay? Now, the second premise is this, is that fine-tuning is not due to physical necessity or chance. That's a, certainly a more bold statement and one that we'll try and uh, answer. And so we're gonna answer both of these in turn, okay? So let's look at physical necessity. So the idea is, is that in this alternative, um, the fine-tuning of the universe, uh, it has to be that way. And so the blank is, is that it has to be life-permitting. So if you accept this as the explanation of the fine-tuning of the universe, uh, the universe has to be life-permitting. That's the way it has to be. And said another way, a life-prohibiting universe in this scenario is a physical impossibility. It's not possible, theoretically. And so the response to this is simply, I think, what anybody would say philosophically is, well, why? Like, why does it have to be necessary? Um, it seems a pretty radical view to say that it's not physically possible otherwise. And we just looked at some constants, and there's really nothing special or unique to those constants. That, they are what they are, but we also established that well, if they were even a little bit different, that this universe would not be life-permitting. So, so why take that stance, I guess, is what I would say, this physical necessity argument. Um, so you look at the constants, they're not determined by the laws of nature, so they're not like inherently necessary, so why couldn't they be different? The arbitrary quantities are just boundary conditions on which the laws of nature operate, 
So nothing seems to make them necessary. And so the opponent of design is taking a radical line that, res that requires some proof, but there is none. Okay, so it could be that, but it's just not a real fulfilling argument. And it turns out it's not a super popular argument. So the more popular is going to be chance, which we'll look at now. All right, so we looked again, is it due to physical necessity or chance? We would say that it doesn't seem like physical necessity makes a lot of sense. So let's look at chance. And I think this, if you talk to most atheists, talk to most people who really understood this, uh, don't believe that there's a God that designed the universe, they would say that it was just chance. It just happened. It was, just, it was bound to happen somehow. This is kind of what they would think. But I think when you look at it, it, it seems a little bit silly. So let's get into that. All right, so in this alternative, it's just an accident that all the constants and quantities fell into the life-permitting range. Basically, and here's your blank, is we got lucky. And isn't that nice? We got lucky. All right, so the fundamental problem is, is that the chances of a life-permitting universe are so remote that this alternative becomes unreasonable. And this is what I get down to kind of like the faith of an atheist. Like, is it sillier to believe that this all happened by chance, especially when we understand how tightly tuned this universe is, or is it silly to believe that God designed it? And can't prove either one, okay? And so it does kind of come down to faith, ultimately. Now I want to do a little bit of a, an illustration here, and I want to ask you to be honest. Okay, I realize this is a Bible study, but uh, who has played the Powerball before? All right, you three are going to heaven. This is great. It's the end of the podcast. You've never played it. You've played a lottery ticket before. I've bet on horses, but I really don't remember buying a lottery ticket. You say you've bet on horseshoes or horses? Horse races. Okay. It's like horseshoes. Wow, so gambling like, everything. I've done bad things, but I haven't played a lot. Yeah. Well, Powerball is, is objectively dumber than betting on horses. So, and I've done it uh, for sure. When it gets, you just they just automatically do it. You pick all your lucky numbers. I'm just kidding. Um, so, do you know what the odds of winning the Powerball are at, at present? What do you think the odds are? One in a hundred million. It's a good guess. It's worse. I don't know, like the seventeenth power. No, <laughs> no, that's the fine tuning of the subatomic. No, um, it is one in two hundred ninety-two million. That's the odds of winning the Powerball. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. That was there seven billion people on Earth. The odds are one in two hundred ninety-two million. Okay, all right. So the the reason we play is that we know that everyone's chances of winning are equally improbable. But why do we play? Because somebody's got to win. All right, so that's why you play. Well, somebody's got to win. And if I won, it would change my life, right? It would actually ruin my life. But anyway, that's, that's, we're not trying to be logical. Um, and so um, if we're talking about the odds that our universe happened by chance, we've got to keep this in mind, the numbers become a lot more mind-boggling than 1 in 292 million. So 292 million is like not even in the same conversation as those numbers we were talking about earlier. Um, and not to mention that these things stack. And so these odds, they stack on themselves. And so you've got, you know, one to the, what was it, 120th power, 10 to the 120th. Then you got the one that I can't even say, like I don't even know how to like verbalize it. And then they stack. And so the odds become like just absurd, okay? Um, and so you could kind of say that it's sort of like winning the Powerball five times in a row. And it's even worse than that. Uh, but the analogy is this, is that if that happened, so if someone won the Powerball five times in a row, what would you think had happened? Cheated. Somebody cheated. Rigged. It was rigged. Okay. Um, people probably already think it when one person wins it once. <laughs> it's rigged. You know, I had the number. 
Even if it happened twice in a row at an odds of, of one to 292 million, so whatever that is compounded together, it's still not even close to the odds we're talking about. Everyone think it was rigged. Everyone think it was somebody cheated and it was set up and people would be so mad, right? Um, in the same way, I would say it is just as silly to think that our universe was created by chance. I think it makes a lot more sense when the odds stack on themselves to say, well, it's rigged. And the reason it's rigged is because it was designed, okay? It didn't happen by chance, right? Okay, so I think that's the better uh, explanation for cosmic fine-tuning. Okay, so we've looked at these three options. We looked at the first two, rather. Um, the fine-tuning universe is due to either necessity or chance. Necessity, you'd say to that, well, why? Why is it necessary? I mean, why, what, what about our universe and the constants and the quantities? What's so special about those? Second thing would be chance. It's just astronomical. It seems like a silly thing to kind of base our existence on. And then, of course, we've got design. Okay, so we'll look at look at that. And so the, the the premise that we choose is therefore it is due to design. Which obviously, if the universe is designed, well, who was the designer? That's that's the the natural follow-up question. We would say that was God. Um, now, I I feel like I need to include Dawkins in this, or I need to include kind of some of the arguments of atheism in this. If you don't know who Richard Dawkins is, I would say he is the most famous atheist living today. And you might would even say he's, let's say he's one of the top three most famous atheists of all time. I don't know who would make it in that top three, like Nietzsche and somebody else. Who do you think? You probably have a good answer for that. Somebody else. Bertrand Russell. I have no idea. All right. Hawking, yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably Hawking. Maybe Nietzsche. Maybe these three guys. They can all hang out together. I think for um, like in this time, that's probably true. But like 50 years ago, that probably wasn't true. Sure. Yeah, I think in this current time, so who knows in 100 years. Dawkins, I would say right now, is the kind of the modern leader of the atheistic and certainly the evangelistic atheistic movement. Um, and he sold millions of copies of his book. Um, and so he obviously takes issue with this conclusion. And he and William Lane Craig, I don't think they have directly debated. They've been on the stage together. But obviously... He thinks William Lane Craig is an idiot and doesn't agree with him and so on and so forth. And so the main issue that atheists and detractors of the design argument have is that the cosmic designer himself, God, remains unexplained. <clears throat> and I think that's fair. Um, so it's like, okay, well, if you think it's design, well, how do you explain the designer? You know, I mean, so certainly a person of science would say, well, you can't prove that, so this is stupid. So I, I'm just as smart off thinking it was by chance. All right, so let's look at that. So here are his arguments from his book, The God Delusion, it sold three million copies. That's a lot of copies of a book. And so, you know, has anyone read The God Delusion? Okay. Um, I have not. Here is his kind of central argument from that book. And I think what you'll see is, is that in contrast to these logically valid arguments, it doesn't really have that same level of um, sophistication. Okay, but this is what's selling millions of copies. This is what has people excited about not believing in God. And again, a lot of people look up to this guy. All right, so I'm going to read them in turn. One of the greatest challenges to the human intellect has been to explain how the complex, improbable appearance of design in the universe arises. The natural temptation is to attribute the appearance of design to actual design itself. The temptation is a false one because the designer hypothesis immediately raises the larger problem who designed the designer? The most ingenious and powerful explanation is Darwinian evolution by natural selection. We don't have an equivalent explanation for physics. So the physics is what we're talking about tonight. That's the fine tuning. 
We should not give up the hope of a better explanation arising in physics, something as powerful as Darwinism is for biology. And this is the conclusion of those statements. Therefore, God almost certainly does not exist. Okay, so I did not alter this. This is like literally from his book. This is his way of getting around to saying that therefore God almost certainly does not exist. I hope it's kind of clear like some of the holes in the argument, but I'm going to point them out um, and kind of why they're invalid. Um, I think, first off, the conclusion, therefore God almost certainly does not exist, does not follow, like in a classically philosophical, like solid argument, rational argument way, it does not follow from the six previous statements. Even if we conceded that all six of them were true, it sort of feels like out of left field. Okay, it's like, oh, okay, if you feel that way, that's great. But it doesn't follow logically, okay? The other one is uh, step five, and so we look at step five, which is we don't have an equivalent explanation for physics. Uh, again, this is the cosmic fine-tuning that we're talking about. Step six that follows is that we should not give up hope of a better explanation arising in physics, something like Darwinism for biology. Uh, this is the faith of a naturalist. This is like literally like you're talking about science and trying to be like really logical and rational, and you've got a point in here that is, well, we shouldn't give up hope. Okay, I mean, I can hope for a lot of things, but it's just, it's just not a solid argument. And then three raises this question, who designed the designer? Which, again, like there's a part of me that like, some of these arguments, they kind of land home with me. It's like, well, yeah, well, who did design the designer? Okay, so let's look at that specific thing. Because I think there's two problems with that question of who designed the designer, okay? All right, so in that sense, uh, and this is your blank, is you don't need to explain the explanation. And granted, we're talking about God here. We're talking about an unseen being that's outside of space, time, and matter. So, it, you know, I guess like the most, you know, logical thing would be if God was like sitting right here, he'd be like, well, of course I exist, you know. But that's not the way things are. So, uh, we do have to have some explanations that are not going to answer in the natural world. But um, let's look at this concept of not having to explain the explanation. Um, in order for, to recognize an explanation as the best possible explanation, you don't need to have an explanation of the explanation, okay? And this is true of a lot of other things, okay? So kind of follow me here. You look at uh, archaeologists and astronauts, okay? And so if an archaeologist, if they discover arrowheads and pottery shards, they would be justified in inferring that those artifacts are not the chance result of sedimentation and metamorphosis. Those products were designed by an unknown group of people. Wouldn't that be fair for them to assume, okay? Um, now of course, it's a little bit different, but if they find some shards of pottery, some arrowheads, they're not just going to assume like, well, I guess this just happened. You know, I guess this is just here. Yeah, right. Another way of saying it is like if you're walking down a trail and you run into like a Lego castle that's been put together, like, well, what, is, what a queer thing to run into. You know, it's like, I wonder how that got here. Well, I mean, probably some kids put it together and like left it there, okay? Same thing with an arrowhead. Like it's, it's perfectly acceptable did I have to explain the explanation? Well, some people put it here. I don't know who. Okay, well then, if you don't know who, then it couldn't have been designed. Well, obviously it was designed. Astronauts is another one. So if we go into some like distant planet and we find a pile of machinery on the backside of it, um, an astronaut would be justified in inferring that it was a product of intelligent agents, right? It's not going to be that it just happened upon there, that it just popped out of existence. Um, so. It, you know, when we see complex design things, both in humanity and also in the universe, it's, it's just silly to think that it just sort of happened. Or just, well, that's just the way it is. It had to be that way, you know. Um, and so, uh, let's see. 
And you can say this, is if you always had to explain the explanation, then really nothing could ever be explained. And this is maybe like kind of a absurd sort of way of thinking of things, but I'll read it as he says, is that before any explanation could be acceptable, you need an explanation of it, and then an explanation of the explanation of the explanation, and then, well, nothing could ever be explained. Okay. So what we would say is that in order to recognize that intelligent design is the best explanation of the appearance of design in the universe, we don't need to be able to explain the designer. Okay. And I hope that is a uh, satisfactory sort of conclusion for you. Um, we don't have like an airtight 100% explanation, but of the alternatives, I do think design legitimately makes the most sense. That does not mean that God, Yahweh God, capital G God did it, but it at least helps support the things that we believe in faith. Okay. The other thing he says is, is that he says that, that God is uh, complex. Okay. This is like, well, you've got this complex design, and then your answer for it is, is this much more complex uh, designer. So he says, well, that seems absurd to him. Uh, but the truth here is, is that, and when Lane Craig argues this, is that God is in fact simple in the sense that it's a divine mind with the ability for complex thought, but a mind is still much simpler than the universe itself. Um, and even further, simplicity or complexity is not the most important criteria for determining what is true. Okay. So, uh, you know, so what if God is complex or simple? It doesn't undo that he might be the one that designed it, okay? All right, so this is my like little conclusion and we'll finish up. You've made it through this deep stuff. Um, this is a guy named Quentin Smith and he's actually an atheist that does debate a lot with William Lane Craig and they have a good relationship. And I know Stephen Hawking just passed away last week, but I was gonna insult him before he passed away, so I'm just gonna continue on with insulting him. <laughs> Um, he has this book, uh, A Brief History in Time, and he argues against the existence for God. And uh, Quentin Smith, an atheist himself, says it's the worst atheistic argument in the history of Western thought. <laughs> kind of rude. Maybe he, would, maybe he would temper that a little bit now that he's passed away. But um, William and Craig says that the God delusion deserves to take over this throne. Okay, so they're kind of arguing back and forth. Uh, but I really, I think, like, when you read it, and I think this is why I bring it up, is that I've had people, like, bring up Dawkins or bring up... Sam Harris or bring up Christopher Hitchens or some of these guys that are like big atheists right now. I watch Christopher Hitchens, you can go watch on YouTube, like debate William Man Craig and he gets, I mean, he gets killed, he gets murdered. And Hitchens is a funny guy, he's since passed away. We actually saw him at a taping of Dennis Miller Live. But anyway, it, you know, they're like popular, like really well known, they're really well regarded and, and they're very intelligent men in a lot of ways, but the arguments are not more compelling. Like they're not deeper thought through. It's just another side of the argument, okay? And so I feel like if you're going to accept that, you have to be honest with what those conclusions are. Are they logical? Are they rational? And I would say that I don't think they are. And I don't think that this is anything to build three million book sales on and a whole movement of wanting people to be atheists, okay? I think that it's an easy thing to attach oneself to because he is culturally relevant and he's well regarded by certain people, but I just don't think it's that impressive. Okay. So, this is what we've looked at. Physical necessity, chance, or design. We'd say it's not due to physical necessity or chance. Therefore, the fine-tuning of the universe is best explained by design. Okay? And I want to read this kind of as sort of a conclusion. And we, we talk about here at the beginning about Plato and Aristotle and Paul and how thousands of years ago, these people believed that there was design that was evident in the universe. And we're starting to see scientists kind of come back around to this, which is really awesome, I think. 
We also see it in King David as he wrote this in Psalm. And I like to think that like we started out where, you know, we're looking out at the night sky and we're kind of pondering things and, man, I feel really small and, man, this is awesome. And why don't I do this more often and so on and so forth. David would have had that opportunity. And so he writes this in Psalm 8. He says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Okay, so really right in line with what we're talking about. And this is a quote from another famous David, David Flatt, <laughs> from when he gave this lesson. Um, I hope he listens to this. He won't, but um, I want to read this. It's kind of a nice way to conclude all this, I think, is that um, and let me see if I got on the screen. I don't, but I'll give you some stars. Uh, we now have more scientific evidence than at any other point in human history to believe what King David wrote centuries ago as he gazed in on wander, wander, wonder into the Middle Eastern sky. Our universe is not an accident. You are not here by mistake. Our world, our, our world is the work of a brilliant designer who not only fine-tuned the gravitational constant, but who has always been in the constant pursuit of your heart. The God who put the stars in the sky wants you to know Him forever. He wants a relationship with you so badly that even though He is holy, powerful, and just, He saw your sin and sent His Son to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death you deserve to die, and to conquer the enemy that you couldn't, so that all who trust in Christ will be reconciled to God forever. This story, the gospel, is our story. It will save us, and it is worthy of telling to the ends of the earth. From the first moment of creation to that great day of hope and celebration, when we will finally see His face and every tear will be dried from every eye, the universe and the existence of the universe is not an accident. It is designed. Oh, come Lord Jesus. Thank you for joining us uh, tonight as we dove into a really deep topic, a really scientific topic. And I think uh, inside the room there, there's a lot of great discussion afterwards. This is definitely the sort of thing we don't talk about very often, but I think it's very faith-affirming, and I think it takes away some of the doubts that you might have experienced if you're sitting in a science class and you have a professor that is you know, purely naturalistic or that would believe that evolution can explain everything, or that, yeah, our universe, it just came into existence with no explanation. I don't think it's as simple as that. And so if these sorts of arguments, if they land with you, if this sort of discussion is something you're interested in, highly recommend picking up William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith or his kind of easier book, uh, On Guard. It's a really great book, and uh, hopefully that'll be helpful to you in the way that it's been helpful to me. We will be back next week. I believe Dr. David Flatt is going to teach us on what we alluded to. It's the Kalam cosmological argument, and it is this question of did the universe begin to exist? And if it did, it certainly points more logically to the need for a creator. And it's a really great lesson. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's actually the lesson that really should have come before this one, um, but it'll come find after it as well. Uh, if you hear any cars, these are cars outside the Carpinetti's house. I'm recording this outside. Uh, it's beautiful outside. Hope it's a beautiful week for you. I hope you're blessed. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.